Howdy gamers, it's Leighton here from Leighton Night, the podcast that you're currently listening to in case you accidentally stumbled upon this, in which case I am sorry, but just wanted to let you know that there is a video version of this episode that is up on our Patreon for all tiers. So if you want to join us over there, depending on the tier, you can get all sorts of cool benefits. We do mini-sodes every week. We do some fun videos. Uh, You get access to our fan discord and overall it's a really lovely time and we would love to have you there. So without any further ado, here is the audio version of this episode. So if you want to do the video version, you can go to patreon.com slash Leighton Night, or not. It's really whatever floats your boat. Anyway, episode... So I want to start off here. Jarek, what's your connection to our guest today? So everybody, we got the one and only Kevin Lyman on the podcast. I know Kevin Lyman's daughter, Sierra Lyman, who thank you for the intro. Kevin, I've met everybody in your family except you. Um, (laughs) I've even been to your house without meeting you first for Sierra's birthday. (laughs) <laughs> which is a lovely abode you have. Well, I'm glad you had a good time. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yes, I know Sierra and all of her friends. And I've gotten gotcha. to meet Sierra, who I can also attest is awesome. Oh, I didn't know you had a connection there too, Leighton. Through Jarek's birthday party. <laughs> Could have been there, Brian. Gotcha. So this is through music stuff, right, Jarek? Well, I met Sierra through other friends, Sam and Britta. I actually met Sam and Britta because I was in line for a studio garage sale with previous guest, Max Green. (laughs) And there is this guy in front of us. He heard me over talking how I just got off the courts playing tennis. And this guy was like, oh, so you play tennis? I'm like, yeah, I do. He's like, oh, cool. The French Open's about to happen right now. And and lo and behold, this is our our sweet boy, Sam. (laughs) I'm sure you could nerd out over sound gear with him. This goes for all of you. What was your best LA yard sale find, if any? I have a good San Diego garage sale find. Disqualified. Ah, (laughs) it was at Qualcomm Stadium. Two times there, had great times. I found a Silvertone guitar. And another time that I went, um, I found like an MXR carbon copy delay pedal. And the delay pedal, the lady, I guess she didn't know what she had. And I was like, $5? And she was like, uh... (laughs) 10. I'm like, all right, you got it. <laughs> and originally these things were like a hundred bucks. And I was like brand spanking new, just like on the floor. What about you guys? What was your best LA garage sale? My wife has supernatural abilities with this stuff and has sourced most of the furniture in our house. How have I not gone to a yard sale with your wife yet? Know. She's amazing at that stuff. But she did find this incredible, like gorgeous old solid wood thing that she talked to him, you know, from a hundred bucks down to 50 bucks. And we've had it for 10 years or something now. It's pretty great. Kevin, have you found anything particularly good ever? I was just thinking about it. It's almost like reverse. It's why you don't have a garage sale in Los Angeles. You know, (laughs) (laughs) we load everything up and just take it to Goodwill. Like we've got bags in the front of the house right now because it's nothing like sitting out front of your house on a Saturday morning at like seven o'clock and you've got it all set up. And I've had like expensive golf clubs out there. You're asking like 
$50 for a driver that could cost like $400 and you've used it like five times, you know, and, yeah, yeah. and you want 20 bucks for it, you know, and someone walks up and they go, I'll give you five. And it's better just to say, just take it, <laughs> just have it for free. So it's been a while, like you said, the furniture and things around the house, we used to do a lot of that, but we've actually entered kind of that purging phase, I guess you have in life where oh. you, you want things to be leaving your home. Yes. You know, we love our daughters, but it's nice that they've kind of left and they're on their own in a little ways. We love mm-hmm. that they come back every week and see us, but we're kind of on the, the outflow now of life because the, the last thing you want to do is leave earth and leave a pile of crap behind for the people that you've left behind to have to sort through. The thing I'm most worried about with that, because I've heard it sucks, is books. We have a lot of books. <laughs> yeah. I mean, thousands or close to a thousand or something like that, like hundreds and hundreds at least. And people die. They have these big book collections. No one gives a single shit about any of them. And what do you do with hundreds of books? Like libraries generally don't want them. You need to sort through them to figure out if any of them are worth anything, which most of them probably aren't. That's my one thing I'm curious about. We had that discussion last week. Books are one thing, but think about CDs. Like (laughs) what the hell is someone going to do with the thousand CDs? Like we have this giant Japanese Tensu that it looks like a nice piece of furniture and you open it up and it basically has like a ton of CDs in there. And literally we had that discussion a couple of days ago. What the hell are you going to do with these? You know, uh, I've seen some people making wind chimes out of them. (laughs) That's what you guys could do next time you have a party at my house. I'll have my daughters do a wind chime uh, party where you guys could pull all the wind chimes of your favorite bands and make a wind chime. So, you know, Sam and Britta now that... You know, they're all nice married couple and everything, so they're going to want to get into crafting soon. So you know, <laughs> that could be a project for you guys at my house, please. How often, Kevin, do you listen to CDs these days? We don't. Yeah. <laughs> we don't. It's funny you ask. It's like this discussion we just had. My ears are so blown out from 40 years in the music industry. So needing that quality of an LP, I was like that. Well, I like the quality of the sound. Well, yeah. you hit a certain point, it all sounds the same anyhow. So yep. Spotify <laughs> streaming lists on your one ear pod in your ear are just fine. But I don't even know if I can play the CDs anymore. I was wondering <laughs> if we have a CD player in the house. Well, yeah, like so many laptops and computers don't even have disk drives anymore. I'd have to go get a CD attachment for my Mac and put it in there and then play it through. You know, I have like a mini studio here in the garage. Play it through that to like actively listen to. Oh, well, it kind of was like how important you were when you went to a music conference or some sort of like South by Southwest and you were flying home. You knew you were important if you were carrying like a duffel bag full of CDs that people (laughs) handed you on the street. That was like a status symbol. And now you don't really have that status symbol when you're flying around. (laughs) Yeah. Kevin, what is the most interesting piece of merch that somebody's given you personally? Oh, my gosh. Early on, it was like a skateboard. But now a lot of people put out skateboards, drum heads, mugs. One time a band gave me a fishing vest, but it was handmade. Oh, that's awesome. You know, they knew I liked fishing. So at the end of tour, they had done it up and did all the artwork on the back and made it the Kevin Lyman personalized big D in the kids table fishing vest. You know, that's great. Functional and a promotional tool. (laughs) Yeah. So Kevin, I'm in this band called Ninja Sex Party. We're a comedy rock band. And we're always trying to think of like, it's kind of a a nerdier fan base, like interesting merch that would pop off with them. And the best one we've had recently was uh, custom D&D dice. So like the polyhedral dice, which we were like, yeah, yeah, will anyone want these? And suddenly we couldn't keep them in stock. 
you know, it's like, okay, I guess people want dice. And all you have to do is put limited availability in front of it. That's how you sell it and you sell it out and move on. <laughs> have you considered like dice towers with doing like all the 3D printing I'm pointing to my 3D printer. Ooh, there are yeah. a bunch of designs for like incredibly elaborate dice towers where it's like, here's a transparent side and you throw them down the stairs and it's like a crazy castle. I feel like that's, a, that's an interesting super idea. duper limited edition Ninja Sex Party dice tower. Yeah, that's a good idea. We did try recently to get a, uh, you know what a drinking horn is? Yeah. yeah. It's like what you go to a Ren Faire, the horn shaped thing. It turns out that they were impossible to get in any decent way and none of them came with stands so it was just this unstable you know rounded cone that would immediately spill if you tried to put any liquid in it and we finally got real close on one actually and then they were like oh but it's six ounces which you, you want a flagon of beer or something in a drinking <laughs> horde not right. you know half a diet mr pib or something like that <laughs> yeah Let's introduce the show here, everybody. This is Late Night with Brian Wacht. Over here, we have Leighton Gray. That's me, the one who just spoke. That was Brian Wacht. Hello. And we also have our beautiful, wonderful producer, Jarek Centeno, here. Hello. Hi, everybody. And mystery guest, would you care to introduce yourself? Um, my name is Kevin Lyman. I guess after the summer, I'm the man of life and leisure. But um, actually, before <laughs> that, I'm a music festival producer, I guess best known for creating the Vans Warp Tour. And later in your life, you're known for less and less, you know, but before that, you know, I've been in the music industry for 40 years and uh, was the first stage manager of Lollapalooza. I used to run 320 shows a year in Los Angeles for a company called wow. Golden Voice and a production company. And lately I'm a full-time professor at the University of Southern California. I teach That's five awesome. classes. This will be my fifth year as a full-time professor. So I'm actually sitting here and scrambling to get everything <laughs> together for school that starts next week, because like I said... It made up for a lot of time on the road uh, and then the <laughs> pandemic and really have been home about 10 days all summer. Oh, wow. Hence maybe that glow I have on your show, that, <laughs> you know, that colorful glow right now. But I really, you know, working on a lot of different things all the time and still working in the branding and marketing world and helping artists build their brands. So it's funny how people come up and you're the warped guy. And I guess that's, <laughs> I am the warped the guy. Warp. <laughs> so did you start out in bands and everything and then kind of get into tour promotion or? Absolutely not. I absolutely have no ability to play an instrument. Mm -hmm. I had no ability to ride a skateboard well. I was always hurt. <laughs> and two, I can't speak a foreign language, but I could talk on the phone. Right. I was able to talk on the phone and, and I held the lease on a house where a bunch of skaters and musicians lived. So someone had to figure out how to find work for those guys to uh, be able to pay the rent once a month. I think they had to come up with 90 bucks each at that point to pay for this house we live in. And I started putting on shows in college, really. I was trying to raise money oh, yep. for an underfunded ski team. We were an underfunded ski team in Southern California. And I started throwing backyard parties and putting bands on. I grew up in Claremont, California, which is east of Los Angeles, about an mm -hmm. hour. There wasn't really a scene out there. Now in that area, there's the Glass House, there's yep. the Fox Theater. There was a yep. lot of great stuff going on out there. But really, if bands wanted to come out, we had to find places for them to play. So mm -hmm. I would find a backyard and a lot of times that was maybe a fraternity party and I'd pay them to use their backyard and it was five bucks for five bands and all the beer you could drink. And when the beer ran out, we ran out the back door and called the cops <laughs> on our own party and uh, came back and paid the fraternity house. And, you know, and then I graduated college and like so many people, you know, it didn't know what I was going to do with my life. And, uh, 
what else did you do? What when you graduate college and uh, you moved to Hawaii? And I worked at weight loss <laughs> camp for girls over in Hawaii and came back after a while. And people said, you did that work. You put that work in in school. You were pretty good at doing what you did. Made a lot of mistakes and uh, opportunity opened up at a punk rock club in Los Angeles called Fender's Ballroom. And I kind of walked in and did my first show in that real live atmosphere outside of what I was doing my parties. And I was like, I'm hooked. Uh-huh. And the minute I did that, though, I also said, I don't want to end up in this club 25 years from now <laughs> doing the same thing. So yeah. I started to build a reputation around Los Angeles. I guess my greatest qualification at that point was I knew how to read. Mm-hmm. And a lot of people didn't know how to read a contract. So at least I read and see what the bands wanted. Not that we could deliver it every time, but I actually could read it and try to do my best. And that's what I tell people. You're going to make mistakes. But I, I learned by doing. And before I knew it, I had a production company that was doing 320 shows a year in town. That's amazing. I have a number of friends who have become managers or promoters, or whatever, and no one knows what the hell they're doing to start out with. And they just kind of dive in. And as long as you're willing to admit what you don't know, fake it when necessary, and just learn on the job, it seems like you can get pretty far just by being open to what's coming at you. Oh, absolutely. And it was, you know, learning from that environment. And that eventually grew into a good reputation around town. A lot of my friends went on the road with bands and maybe were making more money. But I stayed in town and built that reputation, which then spun in 1991 to be the first stage manager of Lollapalooza. A lot of people know Lollapalooza as the festival in Chicago, but it was actually a touring festival that we went out and played 30 cities. And that was my first real time on the road. I saw Lollapalooza in 94, I think. So I'm, I'm 47, so I would have been, I guess, 19. And that was the first, like, big rock festival I ever saw. So like me and you, that was the last yeah. time we were cool, was at Lollapalooza, right. you know? It was like, you know? <laughs> yes. That's what I tell people. You know, people go, wow, what are I go, no, I was actually really cool then. If you could visualize me with a cowboy hat, long hair, <laughs> Cut off uh, overalls, no shirt, weighing about 135 pounds in Doc Martin boots, you know, uh, uh, with about 12 chains around my neck, you know. And <laughs> I was a super mixed up punk rocker, hippie cowboy at that point. Then around 1995, this is uh, Derek Sierra was born. And uh, there was that moment in time when you might have to go get that real job. Mm-hmm. And I thought maybe I needed to go get a paycheck once every couple of weeks. And <laughs> we had health insurance. I've always believed that that was very important. Yes. And I decided to go out on a limb. I saw what was going on with action sports and music. We were doing a lot of charity events, board aid, boarding for breast cancer. We were doing shows. And right now, such importantly, a lot of people, I just got off a call about Rock for Choice. I was the first producer of the Rock for Choice events in Los Angeles. Oh, and nice. We were always doing benefit shows. But I actually saw this blending of action sports and music kind of come into the forefront. Mm-hmm. And I'd been producing shows where the Chili Peppers, I'd pay them $250 to play on top of a skate ramp. And <laughs> now you'd pay that much for a ticket, I hear. Yeah. But, you know, we had a blending of this. And I overheard someone to say that X Games were being created. And I said, wait, oh, this is a moment in time where I could be working for someone else because they're going to want to do music around this, I'm sure, or I could do something myself. And I scrambled around and used up all the cachet or credit I had in the business for working hard for 12 and a half years. And I put out a tour in 1995 that became the Warp Tour with bands at that first year, which were Sublime and No Doubt, and mm-hmm. Quicksand, Orange 9mm. So a very eclectic, cool lineup, thinking I would get to do it maybe one year <laughs> and then uh, go out and get that job. And uh, then started learning about 
branding and the use of sponsorship. And you have to realize during that period, it was always about fuck corporate America. And I was like, well, I got to go out and figure out how to get some of this money basically so I can have fun with my friends and keep doing what we're doing. I mean, I don't know if people like, I want to have fun with my friends. So I went and got corporate money, but. (laughs) (laughs) It was very nearly the Calvin Klein Warped Tour, right? Yeah. Vance. (laughs) (laughs) I always use that. I wouldn't be sitting teaching a branding and marketing class at USC, (laughs) probably if I had gone down that path, it would probably be a footnote in history as one of the worst branding partnerships noted in history because what bands like Pennywise and No Effects played on that tour at that point. (laughs) And uh, you get that call from Vans and they were in New York trying to make this deal, my ex-partner. And I got this call and I went down to Vans and I was just hanging out with Steve Van Doren down at the surf contest in Huntington Beach, kind of reminiscing about those you know, 25 years, um, 27, 28 years ago that we got together, but how this turned into a partnership on a tour for 24 years. And we continue to work closely together on other projects. Probably one of the best, by accident, probably one of the best branding partnerships ever done in the music business, really. I mean, that I look back at it. It was great for them. It was great for us. It moved a whole music scene forward. Yeah. When we weren't getting supported by record labels and there wasn't, other brands supporting this music. It opened the door for a lot of brands during that time to kind of step in. And we took that sponsorship money. That was one thing we did and pumped it into that tour to keep the ticket price as reasonable as we did for so long. Yeah. Do you feel like the whole, you know, touring festival, whatever, same basic animal as it was back then, or it's totally different or some combination? I don't know if you're going to have any more touring festivals. Oh, really? Yeah. Someone asked me that a few years ago and I said, and I don't want to say never, but right now with the economics of touring, you always needed a few of the bigger bands taking a step back financially to move the whole movement forward. Right. So when bands, you know, whether it be early on, Bad Religion, No Effects, The Offspring, Green Day, those kind of bands, realizing that it's okay to play Warp Tour because we could bring a lot of younger bands with us and we'll expose ourselves to more fans by making the parts bigger than the whole, you know, all the parts as big than ourselves. It was a great avenue and that usually spun into album sales and a future bigger tour. But the, the economics of the whole industry really came to light over the last few years when CDs we were talking about earlier went away. And now we're dependent on streaming And then now you've thrown in the shockwaves of what happened with the pandemic, where we realized that 70% of all income for the majority of the artists, if not more, was coming from live touring. It got harder and harder for bands to take a step back to move forward. They needed a tour for that income all the time. And it was harder to bring all those young bands. So when we wrapped this thing up, we were in the mid seven figures in sponsorship, putting it into the tour just to keep it afloat. Wow. 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 It's interesting for my band in particular, by typical band standards, we're kind of a weird deal. We're mainly a YouTube act. You know, so we went from playing clubs in New York, 20 people, comedy clubs, like improv clubs usually, because we're a kind of comedy act. And then my partner joined a popular video game channel and I moved to London to become a professor, blah, blah, blah. Actually, I did the opposite of what you did. The year I turned 40, I quit my professor job in order to do music full time. So I gave up a tenured, steady paycheck position to dress up in a ninja costume and, and be, you know, uh, a musician. There might be a little bit of a branding mistake in the title. The official title of the band had like sex ninjas in there or something like that. Ninja, yes, that's correct. Ninja sex party, yes. So I, the sex... 
party, ninja sex party. I don't see you getting booked as part of the Pasadena community music series. That's right. <laughs> so, you know, if, if, if you were one of my students yes. and came to my office today and said, I've got this idea called ninja sex party, I'd say, okay, let's think about where you want to go with that. You're going to be pigeonholed. <laughs> you know, you're 100% correct. We have been totally pigeonholed, but you know, it's one of those things that it's a strength and a weakness. We are a niche act in a very real way, but also most acts these days are. And the name, I feel, you know, it has absolutely held us back from whatever crossover kind of thing. But I don't think that ever would have really happened for us anyway, given, you know, how many big comedy music acts can you name? It's like Weird Al, Tenacious D, Flight of the Concords. That's kind of it. Wow. Have you got booked at any of those bondage conferences or anything like that? <laughs> <laughs> I would tell you that that's how I would market myself, maybe, yeah. you know, BDS&M, maybe, you know, Sex Island or something, you know, maybe you guys want to go become the corporate house band for that. <laughs> we played Conan, which I guess is pretty close. <laughs> well, I heard about his green room. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> when we were first starting out, we played some weird fucking like art collectives in New York. Yeah. And that's probably as close as we got to any kind of like, you know, weird sex club or something like that. But we talk, talked about it extensively and we we're like, you know what? This is just what we want to do. All right. Oh, well. great. Like, we'll see what happens. I want to jump in with a question. Kevin, I was doing some homework last night on the YouTubes on my iPad before I went to sleep. And I came across this video of Green Day burning their drum kit. Can you comment? more on and, and also say why did green day only play warped once and is it because the drummer lit his drum kit on fire <laughs> no i actually my first dealings with green day is where right when they were coming up they are actually on Lollapalooza, and no. they were one of the first bands that had to deal with about calling the audience down you know i've always said that if an audience storms a stage and the band is just playing their music, it doesn't fall on the band. But if the band is on stage and says, everyone come down front, and we've seen lawsuits through the years from yeah. Travis Scott all the way to Gwen Stefani lost a lawsuit due to telling the audience to come forward. Green Day did that on Lollapalooza. And then they trashed their dressing room. And I put their dressing room out in the parking lot one day and said, piggies live in the parking lot. And <laughs> <laughs> but it was funny because I almost went to work for Green Day later on. We got a lot of, oh, really? like, I love Green Day and actually was in communication with them yesterday on something. But we went through this phase where I almost went on tour with them. And they made a comment somewhere that where they said they wouldn't do two things in life. They wouldn't play the Warp Tour or watch Titanic. So, <laughs> you know, if you look at their history, there was a moment of time where they wanted to reconnect. And that's what it was. Reconnect with your audience. And they came out on Warp Tour. So that day I sent the runner out for a copy of Titanic and taped it to their bus door <laughs> and said, now you can say you've done both. <laughs> but, you know, it's funny, like, you know, go through history. Joan Jett played on the Warp Tour. Joan Jett didn't need to be on the Warped Tour, but she came no. out and she embraced it. She came out and had such a great time. Billy yeah. Idol played the Warped Tour. So, you know, Green Day being on the Warped Tour, I think it was a great kind of reconnection with their fans because they kind of were been, you don't want to say a down phase in a band career, but a true artist has ups and downs and weathers them and figures it out. Sure. And in their strategy, they figured out this was a good time to come and play Warped Tour. And I wow. enjoyed having them out. We had some crazy times because we also had a you know crazy summer that summer. Pennywise was out. No Effects was out. 
And we had a pretty crazy summer. We had some great golf games. We go out and play golf. Uh, we got kicked off uh, Isleworth Tiger Woods course. Uh, you know, they, they invited us out to play and they sent us out because our shirts were untucked or something like that. Oh, but- <laughs> it's crazy that like, okay, Green Day is like, I won't play a warp Then they play. And then in the not too distant future, they have a hit Broadway musical. Yeah. Right. Which is like, what? Green Day? Like the Green Day, I remember. What a trajectory. Like, and more power to him, right? I was lucky to do a TEDx Broadway. I was invited to Broadway. They do those TEDx events. And I learned a lot about Broadway. And why they looked at things like American Idiot and things for Broadway was when I learned about Broadway, the average age of going to Broadway was over 50, mm-hmm. making $120,000 a year and white. Okay. So Broadway conscientiously was looking for things that could connect maybe with a younger audience. Yes. Ultimately, Hamilton just broke the door open. Sure, sure. But you looked at it, you know, why the singer of Panic at the Disco was so embraced for kinky boots. So everyone kind of looks at how to reinvent themselves. and, And that Broadway thing really opened the door for other people. You know, uh, there's a show, Fat Mike from No Effects has been working for years on the show, but this one's so over the top, it might be too much for a Broadway. (laughs) It was really cool. I went to some previews out of it and I didn't know if I enjoyed it or just walked out eating therapy after the play. (laughs) But, um, you know, there's some really cool stuff. Yeah, for sure. I wrote a forward to a book on Green Day at one point and I finished it with, I just got home and heard that they're playing a stadium near me. And how cool is that? Yeah. Oh, yeah. Wow. Yeah, especially w- considering how when they first started out and everything, I mean, this is when I was a teenager, like, they were really underground and outre and, like, it was alt, right? Yeah. And shitheads, little shitheads. Yeah. But everyone, you know, we all grow up. Most people grow yeah, yeah, up. Yeah. And they evolve. So you never want to judge anyone forever. You know, I, I was dealing with people when they're 18, 19. Sure. You know, it's funny now, I'm doing this event on October 21st up in Las Vegas. It's tied in with that When We Are Young festival that's coming up in Vegas. Oh, yeah. They asked me to come up and do something. And I didn't want to just tag on to someone's festival and I'm not involved. But we're doing a, a benefit for Music Cares and Charity Bomb where we're doing the Strange 90s show. You know, Jared from Bowling Soup. And we've got a lot of artists coming up, members of Amberlynn and All-American Rejects singing their favorite 90s song. But you mm-hmm. meet these people now and they have families and kids, which also sure. makes it difficult to maybe go on that festival tour where they have to step back. You know, the financial responsibilities of these artists now go a, a lot farther than the, just themselves. Absolutely. No, I think about this. I have, a, I have an eight-year-old. Like, I can't, you know, be that crazy theoretical physicist I used to be. You know, I have a responsibility now to go out in my ninja costume. Great. <laughs> <laughs> right. You're set for Halloween for the next 10 years at least. Oh, right? I, I, I've thought about it, yeah. No, I, I, I see this all the time. And it's interesting. I think we're starting to see the beginnings of this now with YouTubers and people on digital content who were shithead 15-year-olds or whatever when they first came up. And now they're getting older. This was, for some people, this is the mid-2000s, like 2006, you know, six seven was the first wave of these folks. And now getting older, getting families, more responsibility. It's a different thing. I find that aging up, you know, from the controversial young creator to the now, family person is, is such an interesting shift. Yeah, if you were still talking about the color of an avocado to fourteen-year-olds, you're just becoming a creep. So you better figure out, you know, you better figure out how to evolve. And that's what I'm always yes. worried about. I was worried about a lot of those YouTubers we brought out because they need to evolve. They want to be, but the ones who stayed thinking that they were Peter Pan just got weird. 
Yeah. No, that's right. And, and a lot of, you know, the most impressive and interesting people just tried new stuff. Yeah. You know, I'm going to make a giant movie. I'm going to try to write a book, whatever. Just try new things and see what happens. There's some controversy around this person, but I'd say the most successful person I ever dealt in that world was Jeffree Star. Oh, right. But mm -hmm. Jeffree Star started out in the parking lots of the Warped Tour. Oh, and right. Jeffree Star was out there. And I love Jeffree Star because he made everyone uncomfortable about their sexuality. It was like, mm. you know, you saw like grown, like crusty crew people getting all nervous when Jeffree Star walked up because, you know, it's just he just <laughs> had that vibe, you know, and then watched how grew into a very successful business person and took that part of it and evolved. Now, there's controversies and things maybe around, but I also saw the good side of every time there was a charity or a child that was at the show, we dealt a lot with kids that were like a make-a-wish type kid. We had our own organization that we did with that. Who was first there to meet that person? And, you know, some of the most controversial, maybe out front, uh, Ronnie Radke from Falling in Reverse, who sometimes mm. people had, you know, doubts or questions, was that first person that would sit down with that person and talk to him and sign something or bring them over and have lunch with them. And Jeffrey was the same type of person. So mm -hmm. it's how you as evolve as a human being. And some people definitely need to be canceled. Yes, I'm not saying yeah, there's a world that people need to be canceled from, but a lot of people just under 25, the adolescent brain is not fully developed and they're going to go make some mistakes. You should be able to redeem yourself from most mistakes, not all mistakes but most mistakes. Yeah. yeah. Yeah, something that really struck me in doing some homework on you and reading interviews is I love the emphasis that you put in the way that you look at community, building a community, this sort of like multi-generational thing, but also like breaking down the very like judgment-based hierarchy that social media has only like really exacerbated. And I think that like shows and how successful the tour was and what a lasting cultural impact it has in 2017, there were some controversies around some people on the tour. They weren't actually out on the road with me. It was prior to the tour or before, and I had to make these decisions. But I did believe in due process. But living in that world of social media, right when Twitter and I grew up in a world where punk rock was like, we could have different opinions and we could confront each other under that tent. It was tent one was my tent in front of my bus. And we mm -hmm. could sit there and have differing opinions or try to work through things. And I started seeing that it was like social media messages. And there was actually artists on the tour who couldn't walk over and talk to me if they had an issue with me. And I'd read about it online because they didn't come over. They posted it up. And then all of a sudden there are people with a lot of questions. And I felt that everyone deserved an answer. So it's not healthy, I learned. And being in my mid-50s at that point, to sit up all night feeling that every person on social media deserves an answer. I learned that it's really hard to debate, argue, educate on social media sometimes. You know, if you put something yeah. out, you live with it, move on or figure it out. But if you sit there and think, and I started realizing that I was being attacked by someone with 23 personalities, you know, that just didn't like me, you know, and it was really a hard time for me in 2017 to figure this out. And I really felt for your generation and my daughter's generation and now my students' generation. So I spent a lot of time in my classes teaching them how to navigate when you might develop a persona or a person. Wow. I did not set out to be a public person. I became one because I was so passionate about what I did. And I realized that the only people who are going to be passionate about something 
is yourself. Like if you create something, Mm -hmm. the only person as passionate as you want it to be is yourself. So I became the front person for the Warp Tour and I didn't expect to be, but some people would relate it to a scene of music in some ways. I guess I was either the mentor, the disciplinarian, or like all of a sudden the spokesperson anywhere. So with that, you took the heat too. But I do feel sorry for your generation because it was like, wow, people get destroyed undeservedly online. Yeah. And it really breaks down any ability to develop conflict resolution skills in the same way that like social media will also developmentally arrest people where they're like, well, I can just stay at the same level of immaturity forever because it's consistently and exponentially rewarded the dumber the shit I do is. But not being able to like have community oriented discussions of like, here's what we do to make this safe and for things to be better. And instead becoming just an absolute tribalistic circus sideshow. It's so like counterproductive to any sort of growing as people, being good people, question mark. I don't know. I hate it. Well, you just uh, brought up circus sideshows and I just came from the greatest circus sideshow in America. I spent the weekend in Florida. Oh, congratulations. <laughs> Talk about a circus sideshow. You, you, you know, with the Trump Mar-a-Lago getting raided, it was like, talk about oh, a world yeah. that is living in their own echo chambers right now. Mm-hmm. And we're never going to figure anything out if we pulling into these little tribes and witnessing it down there, you know, probably on both sides, but, you know, driving their boats and the MAGA and the revenge tour. You know, what is this with our country? I wish more people travel. And that's our problem. We've had a society that doesn't travel out of this country and really see what a good country we have. It's a large company. It's a comp company. It's a country. (laughs) It's a large company. It basically seems like we're running a company right now in America, but it's a very large country. And I think traveling with artists and, and as a producer and spending so much time and sitting there and having conversations with people from all over the country at truck stops like the Flying J. Great conversations at one in the morning at a truck sure. stop you can have. And well, maybe it's getting less, but I'd say 94% of the people in society can find common ground if we're willing to have a discussion. Absolutely. I, I think about that a lot. Even people you vehemently disagree with, generally speaking, if you talk to them, they're going to be very kind, very polite, very reasonable. And then people just lose their minds when it comes to how they vote and what they think in the abstract. Yeah. So that's where I kind of spun my life now. I always to start my class next week. I ask all my students, what three words define you? And I think that's a very important thing in life. What three words? So for me, it was always music, education, and philanthropy. Mm-hmm. So, you know, that's where I try to base in my life what I build off of. So we start the class with that. And then I talk to him about reading a book called Ikigai, which is a very cool book on Japanese philosophy, very small book to read. All the students look at me like, wait, what did I, like I'm reading about Japanese philosophy. I'm coming over three words. But I say, if you build your basis of your life off of those three words and bring it back to that point, it's a great roadmap for your life. So right now, you know, some of the stuff, you know, we were just talking about the opportunity I'm doing up in Las Vegas, but this I Voted festival that I, I work on uh, with Emily White, who was created a few years back on November, will have concerts where people get tickets to go to a concert if they vote. Uh, because I could never oh, figure out why so idea. few people of a young generation actually vote, but three times as many go to a concert each year. So we're trying mm-hmm. to build in the concept that voting is well, should be easier than going to a concert. Yes. Yeah. 
Well, it probably is. Have you bought a ticket on Ticketmaster lately? So I guess it's, it's, I guess it's almost equivalent to register to vote in some states. Yeah. Mm. So working on the I Voted concert. So that's what I get to do now. I get to bring those opportunities and lots of those opportunities to the students I work with because I say, if you can figure out how to do good and do good business, they go hand in hand. Sure. What was your experience over the last couple of years with the pandemic and, and all the various stuff you're involved with? Like, did things just shut down entirely? I mean, obviously they did for a while, but I guess I'm more interested in what was like coming out of that than being in it. Well, a- I, for me, it, honestly, it, it really slowed me down. And when you're running in this business as hard as I did for over 40 years, time flies, you're going, it's just a cycle. Sure, so sure. it broke that cycle. So mm-hmm. in that way, it's been very good. I mean, I never want to say a pandemic was very good, but for a lot of us, it slowed us down. I didn't have a lot of time to slow down because I still had to teach. And (laughs) on March 9th, 2020, I did our kickoff event for something I did with Talinda Bennington, Chester Bennington's wife from Lincoln Park, Mm -hmm. called the 320 Festival, a mental health festival. And it was going to be held at LA Live. My students were producing it. It was going to be a free day of concerts and mental health awareness. We had about 60 organizations coming down, panels. That was going to be for free. And then we were doing an evening concert benefit show to raise money. And we had Chris Martin from Coldplay playing. We had Lindsey Sterling playing. We had an amazing lineup of artists. And we did the kickoff on campus on March 9th. Ken Jeong came from uh, Mass Singer. You know, he did. He was our host. And we had Grandson play. It was super cool. And that was the ninth and everyone was talking about this weird disease and everything. And then I remember sitting in a little closed in dressing room now going amazing. We didn't get it. Yes. And then school shut down. School was shut down by the 11th. The rug came out on the 13th. I call that like Friday the 13th of the music industry, the touring industry. Wow. Mm-hmm. You know, I'm sitting at home and I'm getting calls from people. You know, people call me. I was that person that people could always call. Uh, about what's going to happen to my tour. What do you think, Kevin? What's going on? And I, of course, I'm willing to talk in the press. I've never been quiet. And I made some comments like, this is bad. It's going to shut us down for quite some time. And a lot of people were like, fuck Kevin Lyman. He doesn't know what he's talking about. Uh, you know, <laughs> Paul Tillette with Coachella, Danny Wimmer presents. And they all said three weeks later, we were pulling down our festivals. Now, people didn't realize that February 27th, I was getting a surgery done and I was lying in a hospital watching oh, the okay. hospital change around me. So I saw protocols changing. And since uh, this doctor, I pretty much paid for a wing of his house with all the surgeries I have had. Uh, <laughs> he came in at the end of his rounds and told me that this is bad. Like they really are kind of figuring out how to let people know without sending a complete panic. And, you know, when yeah. did we all panic when they said we're out of toilet paper? That sent the panic over the wall for most people. But, you know, I had to pivot because we had this mental health festival and we were able to be one of the first large online events. And we did it on March 9th and 10th and 11th. It grew into 36 hours of mental health programming. Wow. And we had uh, like 90 speakers and 60 artists perform. So we pulled that off. And uh, it was awesome because over 120,000 people tuned in at some point to That's listen great. to a panel. So I really didn't get to slow down. And I spent probably that first month and a half just talking. We went to 92% unemployment within a couple of weeks in the live event business. And mostly, I guess I was a sounding board. I was also counting my blessings because after 25 years, I ended Warped Tour in 2019. 
If we were going to go out in 2020, it would have been a total different story on a personal level. We would have probably been bankrupt, to be honest. Wow. Wow. Yeah. So I felt that my point was to be that sounding board and that listening board and maybe help some people with Music Cares who donated a lot of money to get people's rents paid. Just people needed to be listened to. Um, Yeah. And that's the majority. We still find that people need to be listened to because it's not back to, we like to think it's all back to normal. But it's not quite there. It is definitely not. I'm going out on tour in about three weeks. And it's like, I don't really know what to do. You know, how locked down are the green rooms going to be? We're not going to require masks at shows, but that means that, you know, there's a higher risk. We might catch something and have to postpone date. It is not back to where it was at all. And in some ways, you know, we're now facing that next problem. You know, when they were pumping out all that money, it was great. We got those checks in the mail. Stimulus money was fantastic. But I'd always tell people that's going to have to be paid back at some point. Most people didn't realize it was going to be nine months later, we potentially facing this economic uncertainties. Most people's understanding of economics, and we don't really teach them as well as they probably should in school, is gas prices. When gas prices are up, people stress out. All week long, it was fantastic in Florida. Gas prices are down a dollar. It was probably the biggest news every time you turn on a channel. It's crazy down there right now that with their primaries coming up, watching the political ads. Yes, it's nuts. No wonder everyone's so confused down there. (laughs) But, you know, right now we're looking at economics. I mean, everyone had to rush back out on the road because that's where they made their money. So the amount of tours out there is mind-boggling how many shows are going on. That money that people had for the stimulus, if you have any of it left, you're like, I might want to hold on to that because this economy or I'm going to need it for my gas tanks. So we're facing another whammy in the music industry right now. Expenses are very, very high. Yes. Insurance is crazy. Gas prices are crazy. So touring's costing 30 to 40% more. So where are we going to be in a year? As we're seeing a lot of festivals canceling right now. We, we saw talked about Broadway. Weezer was very honest. They had those shows coming up on Broadway and they canceled them and they were honest. They said for lack of ticket sales. Yep. People always say production delays or something going on when they cancel a tour. I always tell my students 90% of the time that means they're not selling tickets. So we're in for a very interesting time and also a time where young people are going to create the ways to move forward. I always say the bands that are fine are the ones that make $100 to $200 a day. They're used to sleeping in their van. They're used to eating, I don't know, maybe their $1.19 burritos at 7-Eleven for one a day. They're cool. (laughs) This is kind of what I was saying before about having a, like a YouTube band like I'm in. Like we obviously took a hit. We weren't touring or anything, but we weren't devastated because so much of what we do was centered around YouTube and merch drops that have nothing to do with being on the road, putting out music videos, which were still in production. We could pivot very successfully to this COVID world because of the whole YouTube fandom and ecosystem in a way that a more traditional band couldn't. And I think we're seeing, like, I'm I'm not a young person by any stretch of the imagination, but I think this kind of like digital creator, digital fan base sort of thing is a lot more sustainable than the road dog mentality. Well, I think it's a hybrid. Yes. You're exactly right. You were already doing it. We saw that streaming boom. Honestly, I think streaming bands are, of course, rush back to tour. They've ignored streaming for a little bit. Yep. If I was a manager right now, we're sitting here in August sometime talking, I would start looking when the days are shorter, when people start getting pushed back inside, I think the 18 to 23-year-olds 
are going to probably look at create unique avenues if an artist is smart to re-engage artists on a streaming level uh, because it's going to be easy. Everyone has those great TVs that they bought during the pandemic. They're going to be out of money. A 12-pack of White Claw is good for the evening versus a $17 beer at a club. And they're going to regather and re-engage. You know, I've even seen yes. that changing and paying attention to my daughters and my students. But I know my daughter, she's now dated a manager for Avril Lavigne. She's very busy. She's good. But her friends got together the other night and did a karaoke night at home. I was there. Because <laughs> maybe, you know, it sounds fun, but I think deep down in your psyche, going out every weekend in LA more than two nights a week, is getting very expensive. So sure. you're starting to think like, how are we going to entertain ourselves? At least one of those nights, we'll stay home to save that money for that big night out. Yeah. So bands that create unique things online again, everyone ran away from it. They should come back to it yeah. and start thinking about that. So, I mean, for us, we, we did one stream performance during the pandemic, sold tickets to it, everything like that. And then it's like, okay, well, we did that thing. What else do, you know, you, you only have a finite number of songs. What else do you do that's like a live concert, but you can actually replicate? So I'm very curious if you've seen anything that bands have successfully done. Melissa Etheridge was the best. Oh yeah. She was doing something every afternoon. And I'd say one out of every five times involved any music. Yep. Sometimes I think right. she'd be like gardening or baking or, you know, just yes. engaging, you know, playing, well, I don't know, favorite ninja game. I don't know. I'm not a gamer. Something with your fans. Yeah. You know? I saw a lot, a lot of bands were doing this, what we call let's play, right? Streaming a video game. Yeah. Where you play together. I, I told someone the other day, Late night, Scrabble with your bands, you know? And if they can play Scrabble and they can beat you in Scrabble, you're going to send them merchandise. And you can learn which band members can spell. You know, exactly. <laughs> Speaking of gaming, Kevin, Sierra commented that you guys brought out the first iteration of the PlayStation on Warp Tour whenever it right. came out. Can you comment about that? Well, I always tried to figure out what trends were moving forward and embrace them into the lifestyle. So... You know, I'd start to hear about PlayStation 1, and I was like, well, let's go find out who runs PlayStation 1. Well, it's Sony, and I later on, I did meet the president of Sony, and I fell asleep because I had jet lag, and it was a, another whole story. <laughs> fell, fell asleep in a pile of sake and sushi. But we just tracked them down, and luckily there was someone there that understood our music, understood what we were about. Laura Armenter was her name, I'll never forget, because she was like, wow, this is where we need to be. Thanks for reaching out. <laughs> I have a check for like five grand. You know, I'd like to sponsor the tour. Wow. And we figured out ways to engage. And it, it grew because I always say it grew from that concept of putting a banner up. Because I said, if you put a banner up at my concert and it wasn't stolen within three minutes by a kid that wants to put it in their garage <laughs> or their band room, then you're not the right brand for us. Uh -huh. <laughs> so we had to create other ways for people to be involved. So then we were like, oh, win a chance to play a game with your favorite band. Give all the bands PlayStations for their tour buses. Talk about Christmas in June was, oh, yeah. you know, you came on Warp Tour. It's like there's Steve Van Doren passing out shoes and socks. Oh, grab your PlayStation for your bus. And, yep. you know. And then each bus was like always battling on who got to take that PlayStation home at first. And, <laughs> and I found brands and I'd watch what we were actually doing in society and going and convincing them like we could blend this in in a natural way. 
You couldn't come in there and beat the fans to death with it. You had to kind of engage them. And we had PlayStation out. And the coolest thing I'll never forget in Cleveland, they came out and they had these kiosks and the kids undid the kiosk and sold the games from the inside. (laughs) (laughs) uh, You know, it also like engaged me in the concept because I was looking at this corporate world. And when a brand was trying to reach my audience who had tattoos and piercings and green hair, they would send someone out in a golf shirt. You know, yeah. golf shirts. Mm-hmm. You never trust a person in a golf shirt unless you're at a golf course. <laughs> it's it's a it's a rule of life. I tell my students, like golf shirt people, I call them. Have you ever asked a person in a golf shirt anything other than what time's my <laughs> tea time? <laughs> no, it's no. Don't trust them. Do not trust them. But so all of a sudden, these golf shirt people were at my show. So why is my fan going to want to talk to them? Because that's usually what the principal wore when they were being sent to the principal's office <laughs> right. was a golf shirt because you notice the principals wear those a lot. And I said, you know what? Start bringing in people from our lifestyle to represent your brand. Okay. So right. I worked through this and worked to bring people. I wanted them to be literate and smart and educated. And there's lots of people that were being discounted because they had a piercing or if they had a tattoo or colored hair. And we integrated that into the court and they became the brand ambassadors, at least when they were on my tours. And that later turned into a whole career for many people who ended up working for these brands. And as those brands grew like Monster Energy Drink, they hired people that worked on the Warp Tour to come and work their own events and festivals. So it was a kind of constantly evolving I know that's a long answer to the PlayStation question, no, but <laughs> it was how we kind of, you know, evolved with the people. And I wanted to create jobs and that turned into an organization called Stapa. It was a tattoos and piercings in the workplace organization that would tour us that lobbied companies to accept people with tattoos, piercings, and colored hair. Mm-hmm. Pretty much have because 40% of the people of an age group, I'm thinking it was something like 20 to 35 have tattoos now. It's a big chunk of people. They tend to have an education. And I just said that one thing that could be limiting is tattoos at first on the neck. Face tattoos are usually a sign that you're committed to a certain lifestyle, that you're going to live that lifestyle. But if you want to have tattoos, just be cautious of what might be visible. And that has changed over time. Before, they'd want them covered up when you're working. Right, right. Well, I was dealing something where we actually had government officials coming out to the Warp Tour. It was kind of a crazy moment. There were some threats going on, some stuff going on around the tour. And they came out and they sent some people to check in with me. You know, just have this discussion from the FBI. Mm-hmm. And these two guys rolled up their sleeves and they had tattoos all of their arms. And they told me how they used to love to be at the Warp Tour when, they're, when they were kids. Oh, that's awesome. So wow. I think that acceptance of society, and uh, it even goes all the way back to Sierra, when we were trying to get her into school, and we moved to an area where you had to go check in with the schools accepting. And mm. at one point, my wife had to wear a sweater set, and she told me to put a button shirt on. So I put a golf shirt on, figuring it might be able to get into the school. And I walk in, and uh, the, the headmaster was standing there with a photo of Reagan, and I go, oh, this isn't going to go well. <laughs> this is not going to finish. He looked at our family and he was like, he had to be nice. He had to give me my five minutes. And I spent the five minutes telling him that people with green hair are the most creative kids I know. Oh, yeah. <laughs> you know, might as well use your moment when you've got a shot. Nice. I'm curious. It's kind of an aside, but another change in bands that I saw happen kind of on the same time scale is back when I was in high school or whatever, there was the whole selling out the worst 
thing you could do was sell out. And now I see younger people basically embracing what we in the, you know, teenagers in the 90s would have thought was a terrible thing. Like now it's like, oh my God, my favorite creators are getting paid. Hell yeah, that's awesome. Get that money. Like, do you notice this change? Uh, I, I mean, I never try to judge a generation. That's what, what oh, I sure. think I was. But it is because it's accepted, you know, working with a brand. Yes. I mean, when we started out with the touring, it was really hard to integrate sponsorships. And I'd right. have to work with the brands and tell Vans and Steve Van Doren, no, you can't put signs on stage. I can't ask these bands to embrace you. Right. But you could earn right. their respect. And that respect was by with shoes and socks. And Steve was really smart. And he developed those socks with the name Vans on them uh-huh, uh-huh. for the Warp yeah. Tour. Because we were all wow. wearing those big baggy skate shorts. <laughs> and all the photos had your feet up on the monitor kicking. Yeah. And it said Vans. So I'd have bands get up there and, and say they wore Airwalks. Mm-hmm. You know? <laughs> Which kind of goes back to lighting your drum kit on fire with Green Day. That story is very interesting. We should probably finish that story. Then we'll come back to the bands. But Green yeah. Day, <laughs> Green Day would lit their drum kit on fire. Less than Jake was shooting fire out of a fire breather on stage. And another <laughs> band decided to join in and, and lit something on fire. A month later, I came through on tour, on another tour, a Latin tour, watch a tour, amazing tour, into Dallas. And the fire marshal was there to arrest me uh, because he said he was in trouble because he wasn't paying attention. I don't even think he was at the show. And he said, I'm here to arrest you because your bands didn't have permits for fire. Mm-hmm. Yeah. I was also managing less than Jake at that point. So I'm there with a bunch of Latin bands. I talk to him and bring him on the tour bus. I go, look, you got to see, I'm trying to manage. I'm doing the best I can and everything. So he goes, well, I'm going to write you a ticket for $600, we're not going to take you to jail. You seem like a nice guy. You don't seem that bad. The venue says you're actually a nice guy. I'm going to give you a ticket for $600. The coolest thing about that was I went and billed each of the bands $600 for my fine, so I made $1,200 on the deal. (laughs) It it all worked out really well. So that question of selling out, no, what's wrong with trying to make a living doing what you love? Yeah, And as long as you're doing it, you know, Ethically, there are some corporations, blah, 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 you don't want to support, et cetera, et cetera. But yeah, it's hard enough to make a career in music, in the arts. If you have an opportunity to do it, go for it. Well, and if you don't evolve, you go away. You got, you know, we look at some of the record labels, you know, trust me, we had side one dummy records, but Epitaph Records, Mm -hmm. Fearless Records, Hopeless Records, they've evolved over time. They don't just sign the same type of bands they signed the first band they ever signed. Yeah. Right. It's like Warp Tour never just, I would have been happy just booking punk bands and ska bands. But we evolved. We always paid homage to the past, looking mm-hmm. to the future. So yeah. I always was like, you're going to see ska out there. You're going to see some punk influences, even on the downtimes, because that's where we came from. But we were mm-hmm. going to pay attention to emo, screamo, hardcore, everything going on. I finally had to draw the line at mumble rap and say, <laughs> okay, if that's the way that the world was going, I'm out. But, uh, you know, <laughs> generations will say, oh, this song's crap. This music's crap. That's crap. You hear it yeah. all the time. And I was saying, look, go stand at the front of the barricade and watch the kids. They're singing as pure from their heart. And those songs are as important to them as maybe the dead Kennedys or bad religion was to us. So never judge what they're singing about. And you know what? I wasn't driving around 
listening to Pierce the Veil, sleeping with sirens. It's not what I jam on my car when I'm going around, but I can respect what they do. And I respected them as people. And I gave them a platform to connect with the fans the same way we tried to connect through making it feel like a backyard party. Warp felt like more like a backyard party than a giant festival. I mean, I don't know if you saw this stage that collapsed this week in Spain and unfortunately killed a fan. Um, But I looked at the thing and it's beautiful, but the most massive, unsafe looking thing I've ever seen. And that separation between the fan and the band is so great that it's just almost like a transactional relationship. I'm going to this festival. I'm demanding a lot. I want a lot. Where I always felt that's warped. I asked the bands, go sign your posters for free. Meet the fans, shake a hand. We stayed away from those VIP programs and those platforms. And I understand the economics and why people wanted to do them. But I said, once someone pays to shake your hand, it's a transactional relationship. Yeah, my band does do the VIP thing, but we won't do the meet and greet for precisely this reason. Also health reasons, you know, this time around. But, you know, we found like a Q&A type thing reduces that sort of transactional thing. I, yeah, I don't like that vibe either. I understood the band's needs because it was financial. Sure, absolutely. So that's where we created the Entertainment Institute. And the Mm -hmm. Entertainment Institute was out on Warp for a few years where fans could pay to take a class from an artist. And some people would take a drum lesson. Some people would take a guitar lesson. I like that. Some people would take a songwriting class. Some people, the craziest was learn how to play violin with a violin player from Yellow Card. Nothing like seeing a kid (laughs) backstage playing violin from his favorite violin player. Some of those did turn into, I want to stare at Andy Black because he's so beautiful sessions, Mm -hmm. you know, things like that. He was such a beautiful man. You know, all the moms were back there, you know, it was like one of those (laughs) things. But, you know, he took time to talk about where he came from growing up in a shitty place where he got beat up and people were into country music and whatever, but staying true to himself allowed him to become who he was and is to that scene of music. So it was a way for me to find that balance that allowed to do the artist to do what they needed. And I wish it carried on, but sometimes, you know, the bands went, the easy way out was to do those meet and greets and the managers, you know, sometimes you take the easy way out. And we made it very easy for the bands to participate in this program. Right. Yeah, that's great. I think we should move on to segments. I wanted to ask really fast before we move on to segments. Kevin, what are the five classes that you're teaching right now? I'll be teaching a, basically this philanthropic thought and entertainment is basically what it is. We're doing the mental health festival on campus. It'll be a group of students that will produce that. They'll also produce an alumni event. I do a undergraduate marketing and branding class. I do a graduate marketing and branding class. I do a festival design and management class, super fun class. Kids love it. Wow. That's all about history of festivals. We'll analyze all the things that are going on in the festival world right now. And then I take a group of kids, they're graduate students actually, who want to understand live touring. So the first half of the class is they'll be creating tour budgets. I'll be showing them how we build teams for touring, the skills that you might want to take in touring. So we do everything from the DIY artist that's in their car doing coffee shops to Green Day doing a statering tour. And I show how the growth of that artist and what you start adding. And then at the end, they all have to present their tour budgets if they were creating a tour budget for this type of event. And these are graduate students in a particular school or program or what? It's like an extended program that they come in for three semesters to learn as much. They might have a degree in 
journalism or philosophy yeah, or some undergraduate degree, whatever. undergraduate degree. And they come in for three semesters to learn a crash course in the music. So they're learning publishing, they're learning contract law, they're learning streaming, NFT. They're just going to learn everything you possibly can. And I handle everything around the live event space with that group of kids. It's 24 students. And you're solo teaching these classes or is it you? Oh, no, I am else? solo. I have no graders. Wow. I go in there <laughs> and I spend the day, eight hours. It's two days a week, but it's eight straight hours. So I have a lot of fun with it. Plus, I'm not a good grader. I'm just like, <laughs> <laughs> I, I start my class off basically saying, you really have to work hard to do bad in my class. And that's turning your work in late because that's not acceptable in our business. When I was in grad school, admittedly for physics, it was the same thing. It's like, look, you guys want to be here. You know, no one wants to give you a bad grade. It's going to be hard to get a bad grade in these classes. Maybe in the first year of graduate school, as it's a slightly different thing. But any advanced classes, it was just everyone's getting an A because it doesn't matter. People are here just to learn. Yeah. For me, it's all about getting your work in and on time. And then there's this yes. crazy thing in higher education they use called the rubric. Oh, yeah. <laughs> which I start all my classes. I said, I think all of you know how to learn. You've got this far and sitting in this room. But I think very few of you know how to think. And the only way you learn how to think is to break that rubric. Mm. Break the rubric. Because you know what? There's no right or wrong answer. And I tell them, if I hadn't broken the rubric of the music industry in many ways, I wouldn't be who I was. Yeah. yeah, I'm a hard worker. I probably would have had a nice career, but I wouldn't have created and done what I did if I didn't try to break all the traditional things that were going on at that moment. So I want you to break it. <laughs> so I, I taught, I was a professor in the, in the UK, in England, and breaking the rubric reminded me of this. This is the way their system works. All the exams are at the end of the year. So for any classes you teach at the end of the year, and I needed to turn my exam in, so I taught a second semester class, exam was in May, I needed to turn the exam in on the second week of classes in January right. before I'd had a chance to teach anything. Right. And you were teaching physics, right? Yeah, that's right. So there is laws to physics. Like me, I'm a little loose. The laws <laughs> of physics, there are some so they didn't blow up the school, right? At least that, or yeah, something like that. That's you know? right. Yeah, the science isn't going to change. Like the answers aren't going to change in between when it starts, when it stops. But it was just one of these things where it's like, guys, can I just like teach the class and see what we get? I mean, there's like a core you got to get through. Yeah. The most proud now that I've probably gotten about 30 people jobs in the industry, 30 to that's 40. Awesome. That so great. now are coming back this week saying, hey, Kevin, I'm looking for an intern. Do you have any yep. undergrads oh, I that I it. should keep an eye on? Because I tried to take over the music industry and teach them how to do good, but I ran out of time doing it the way I used to do it. So now I'm going to work with a whole new generation <laughs> that can uh, come in. I figured it was my last shot at it. So yeah. segments, what is this segments Let's thing we segment. need to get onto? <laughs> there we so, go. Let's all right, go. so we're going to do two segments. First, we have a pop culture recommendation segment. You get to just recommend something you've been enjoying recently. It can be anything, book, movie, video game, literally anything you've been enjoying this week. It's called What's Poppin', and the theme song inserted in post goes here. What's poppin'? What's poppin'? Oh, I mean, I feel what's popping these days is the thought that we want to grow our own food. I mean, I've seen so many young people out there planting things in the garden and really realizing and getting active, getting engaged. You know, what's popping? An election coming up. <laughs> <laughs> Great. Uh, love it. Jarek, yeah, hit it. My what's popping? Dude, I've been listening to a lot of reggae recently. Okay. Just a nostalgic thing with some of my best friends and I. And there are a couple artists 
that I've been like really, really digging into a lot lately. One actually played Warped and it was kind of funny to watch their like live videos. Kevin, is it The Green? Oh, yeah. Some reggae bands. We made this playlist. Is this the one you sent to us? Yeah. I sent you this song yeah. uh, called Cherry Bomb by this band called Nuff Said. Yeah. And that's off of this playlist. My best friends and I, we called it Island Radio 98.9. It's a private playlist, so maybe <laughs> I'll share it. But <laughs> this playlist is named off of like our local radio station that would play all like the reggae hits. So they would play like J-Bug and like The Green and Nuff Said, which is funny. I also learned that maybe like five or six years ago that UB40 is a British band. Oh, yeah. I didn't know that they were British. You didn't? Oh, okay. No, I don't think anybody in Hawaii really knows that they're British because they (laughs) sing like the next reggae artist. So that's why I was popping is just listening to a plethora of nostalgic reggae music. Well, I'm going to recommend checking out a new band. I just got the album sent to me from Law Records uh, called Television. And you fit the void. White boy reggae is huge now. It's like, <laughs> you ever go one of those festivals? Talk about all the bands. So good. So cool. Yeah. Insert name. It's them. So much fun. I always felt it was important. And my favorite one, I don't know if you were turned on it, was Pepper. Yeah. Oh, absolutely. Absolutely. Pepper's played a bunch too, right? On Warped. Yeah. Pepper played Warped and just bringing that Aloha spirit backstage when they would do their acoustic sets always <sighs> built a great mood backstage on Warped Tour. So great choice for popping. Yeah. Real quick anecdote. Pepper's biggest hit, Ashes, a lot of people would plug that into like people's slideshows when they would pass away. I don't know why that was a big like celebration of life song, but that's just a funny anecdote hmm. that I wanted to say. Well, if you ever spend any time with those guys, they celebrate life. That's one yeah, thing, man. You, get to, with, you hang out with Kaleo and those guys, they make you really nervous because they're such surfers. Yeah. And <laughs> I cannot take my shirt off around them. They just like are, they're like studs. They're up there in board shorts. They they sing in board shorts. I went to a show with them uh, in Virginia Beach. I was there speaking, and they had some tickets to Tool. And you know, literally, they're on stage, and they just look like they came out of the water all the time. Awesome, I love it. Uh, Layton, what's popping? What's popping for me is popping for. It sounds like a lot of other people right now, but Jeanette McCurdy's memoir. I'm glad my mom died. Which I was a little bit too old for when iCarly was coming out, but I was, you know, aware of her. And I, I, <laughs> I've i been so excited for the book. I bought it the day it came out because I woke up at 5 a.m. and I read the whole thing before 10 a.m. <laughs> Just so, so good and honest and well-written and unfortunately incredibly relatable. But yeah, I, I really can't recommend it enough for anybody who has like parent trauma or has dealt with mental illness or substance abuse or eating disorders, whatever. Like she really covers the gamut and in a very beautiful and inspirational way. And her podcast, Empty Inside, is also fucking amazing. I've been listening to a ton of it where she had Mike Birbiglia on, Chris Gethard, and a bunch of other child stars. And they're just really, really interesting conversations. That's awesome. So that is what's popping for me. Brian, Yes. what's popping? For me... What's popping this week? It's a 2007 book by the author China Mieville. I've talked about him on the show before. He's a British, vaguely sci-fi author, but he does a lot of different genres. This is his one, I guess it's a young adult novel, although it was not really marketed as such. It's called Unlundun, U-N-L-U-N-D-U-N. And it's kind of an Alice in Wonderland sort of fable about Unlondon. 
which is the un city or the ab city opposite of London. And it's this weird world where there's some mystical like force trying to take over and a young girl goes on an adventure. It's really fun. Lots of wordplay. He does his own illustrations. He's inspired by Neil Gaiman, Clive Barker, that sort of thing. And it's just a fun, easy read. And I think I'm going to read it and then read it with my daughter, who's eight, because it's uh, it's like age appropriate in the way a lot of other China medieval novels are not. So yeah, just a fun, easy, breezy story with some cool stuff. So yeah. Awesome. Oh, yeah, dude. All right. Layton, explain our final segment. All right. So typically we would do peaches and lemons, which is three things we're excited about and one thing that's a minor bummer. But today, in the interest of time and having four people on the show today, we are going to be doing one peach each. So we will each share one thing that has happened or is going to happen that we are excited about, enjoyed, you know, just something good that's going on with you. And the theme song for that goes right here. One peach, one peach each, one peach, one peach each, one peach, one peach each, one peach, one peach each. Great, incredible theme song, absolutely killing it. Who has a peach? Jarek, start us off. I'll go first. So my Great. peach... Like I told you it, to do. <laughs> my peach is now I am an ordained minister. Ah, congratulations! <laughs> I can get people married, marry people, officiate weddings. I'm going to officiate one of my best friends, Christine, her wedding in a couple weeks in Washington. So yeah, that's that's a really funny, <laughs> that's great peach. Congratulations! Thank you, Kevin. You got a peach for us? Oh, for me, I'm just going to say, get back to school, get back into it. Yeah, people don't realize I'm inspired by being around the students as much as I hope I inspire them. So I need that energy. Um, I burned up a lot yeah. of it fishing. I burned up a lot of it, you know, sailing. I, I was really a weird summer having so much time off, you know, after all those years. I need to get yeah. going again or this might become a lifestyle. Yeah. <laughs> and Brian, cool. wants to go next. What's popping for me is that what's, I had my... What? What, this is not what oh, the, what, oh, this is not the what's popping oh, segment, Layton. <laughs> Layton, it's your own show. I know, I know. My one peach each for me, you two were present for, but I had my like makeup birthday celebration last Thursday Mm -hmm. where went out with you folks and others who maybe all of them are latent night alumni, (laughs) like literally every (laughs) single one of them. Oh yes, that's correct. They've all been on our show. Yeah. But we went, we got sushi and tropical beverages and we went to round one karaoke and got some cold stone creamery. And it was just great. I haven't had a birthday thing in years and all pandemic. I've been like, I want that karaoke. I want that round one karaoke with the boys. And it was amazing. And for folks at home following the Lips of an Angel saga, Jarek did absolutely <laughs> fucking crush it. Yes, I, I heard. So, it was a beautiful thing. Great. So thank you guys for being there. It was very special. It was great. Well, that ties into my peach, which is my peach is that my sister was in town for about four days from Jersey, where we are from. And she came to Layden's, the sushi portion of the evening. And we had a lovely weekend just hanging out. And she spent a lot of time with my eight-year-old, her niece. And my daughter, Audrey, could not have been more into my sister and was physically attached to her for about 14 hours a day. So it was a great time with a family member. And, you know, as you get older and family members move around, you don't see much. You start to really treasure the time you do get together. 
So it's nice that she could come out for a few days. And that's it. It was really great to meet Steph in person too. Yeah. And yep. also that she would not give on any embarrassing stories about you, which is truly admirable. She wanted to. I think the conversation just drifted away. That's true. That's true. Yeah. We, we got a couple of the pina coladas in there and then it was like, all right, all yeah. bets are off. <laughs> yeah. Kevin, thank you so much for taking this time to be with us today. It was uh, it was really fun to talk to you and hear all the stories. Yeah, and I want to thank you guys because this is the first time that I ever recorded a podcast and feel like I just did Bikram yoga for about 90 minutes because <laughs> it's, about a, it's, a, it's about 120 degrees in my garage right now and I didn't oh bring any gosh. water. So I was, I'm was i holding on not to have passed out okay. onto the computer here. So oh my I God. do appreciate I like multitask <laughs> with you guys today. I'm like drenched, but thank you for having me. Like I said, when you're next here, there's crafting ready for you guys by the pool. Right. <laughs> yeah, oh yeah, dude. Thanks for taking the awesome. time. It was a pleasure to meet you. Kevin, this was amazing. It makes me jealous of your students for this year. If people at home who are listening to this show want to find any of the like philanthropic things that you're doing, or is there anywhere that you'd like to point them? Oh, I'm super creative online, you know, with those, all those fancy names. You just have mm-hmm. to search Kevin Lyman, okay? It's not like, hey, it's Kevin Lyman. It might be Kevin Lyman. It's just, look at Kevin Lyman. <laughs> Kevin Lyman. Can't believe it's not Kevin Lyman. <laughs> I, I took a break from social media this summer and just right. starting to use it again to promote some of the uh, events I have coming up, hopefully doing a little good in the world. Yeah. Hell yeah. Hell yeah. It occurred to me, I should have told you before. Do you know there's a famous physicist named Lyman? He pops up once in a while. And someone asked me, is that you? I said, yeah, it's my second job. <laughs> the, the Lyman Alpha line is yeah. very popular. Yes. Yeah. Do you yeah. want to leave us some party words real quick, Kevin? Just get out there and do something, really. I mean, we can sit on the sidelines, but if you don't get out and do something, don't complain. Yep. Couldn't agree go. more. That's the show. Sweet. Thanks, everybody. Take care. Okay. Go do something Bye, good. Bye. Bye. Leighton Night is produced by Brian Wecht, Leighton Gray, and Jarek Centeno. Follow us on Twitter at Leighton Night, on Instagram at Leighton underscore Night, or email us at LeightonKnight at gmail.com. <laughs>